This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. What's good, fam? It's your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm D and ED, and I'm bringing you guys another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. I have a super, super special episode, and this is going to be super cool because I have a guest host with me, and we have a guest that's probably smarter than anyone you've ever met in your life before. So I'm going to go ahead and get into it because I don't like to talk when I have smart people on. Um, this is going to be the management of elevated intracranial pressure and cerebral edema in the ED. But of course, this can apply to any setting. Uh, of course, I'm Jim Pruitt. I'm an ED clinical specialist at MUSC. And this is going to be my first show with my my new you know, ED co-host. Go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Hello, everyone. My name is Christian. Uh, I just finished up my TGH in emergency medicine at UW Health in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm uh, going to be starting a ED ICU specialist position at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa. So excited to be on the Arm So Hard podcast. Perfect. So we have him, but more importantly, or I should say just I'm super excited. I've been waiting to do this episode for like a few months now. Um, this is going to be someone who's had a ton of experience, who's done a great job of teaching and representing the profession of pharmacy well. Go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience and give them some background about yourself, Martin. Yeah, my name is Warren Jones. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist in neurocritical care at Methodist University Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I've worked here for 11 years. Man, doesn't feel like I've been out of uh, pharmacy school that long, but it has. Um, I'm also an assistant professor in the departments of neurology, clinical pharmacy, and neurosurgery at the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center in Memphis. Perfect. So we're going to go ahead and get into this, this topic because this is something that I would say most people that are in a trauma center or if you have any specialized neurology services have. Christian, I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to you to ask some of these questions. Perfect. Thanks, Jenny. You know, with any disease state topic discussion review, I really like that to get down to the basics and figure out what is the pathology of the disease state that we're looking at. So Morgan, would you be able to describe the pathophys of elevated ICCs and cerebral edema and how that affects our patients? Yeah, definitely. I'm really glad you started with this question because any resident who's ever been on rotation with me can tell you that one of the things I always tell them is that our job is to understand where the physiology of the disease state and the mechanisms of the drugs that we're going to try to use actually overlap. And it doesn't matter if you remember what's in a guideline. If you can remember those two things, you can always know what treatment options are in front of you. I would say that I thought I had a good understanding of the pathophysiology of this. And then I was a member of the Neurocritical Care Cerebral Edema Guidelines Committee. Um, and really spent three years diving into this disease state, and I learned more than I ever thought possible, and also realized how little I understood before that process about this. So to me, when I start thinking about ICP and cerebral edema, the first thing I have to remember um, is that you can have elevated ICP and not have cerebral edema. You can have cerebral edema and not have elevated ICP. Or those two things can happen in tandem with each other. And unfortunately, it's often really challenging to know uh, which one is causing the problem, especially in the emergency department where you guys are practicing, because oftentimes you may not have monitors in place that early in therapy to know what the underlying problem is. 
So it's really important, again, to understand if I have this certain type of neurologic injury, it may lead to this sort of elevated intracranial pressure or edema based upon these mechanisms. So when you think about a neurologic injury, we all know there's a ton of things that can come in through the ED, ischemic strokes, traumatic brain injuries, intracerebral hemorrhage, meningitis. Unfortunately, cerebral edema or elevated ICP is not the same thing in all of these disease states. And I think that's actually where um, we did a good job on the cerebral edema guideline is we try to talk about the fact that all edema may not be created equal. And so even though there are what I would say five primary types of cerebral edema, the two that I want to talk briefly about from a physiologic standpoint are going to be vasogenic and cytotoxic edema. So I like to start with vasogenic because it's the one that I think most people can understand the easiest. So I always say that vasogenic edema is when there's additional fluid inside the cranial compartment but not inside the brain itself. So it's almost like a ball floating on water in that moment. So this is largely due because the brain has increased permeability through the blood-brain barrier. Um, like if you have excess inflammation from a TBI, uh, this leads to breakdown of the tight muscular, or tight junctions, excuse me, uh, that are part of the blood-brain barrier. And that's going to allow fluid, albumin, electrolytes, ions, toxins even, um, to influx into the brain. And we all know that these things, especially if they're colloids, they bring fluid with them into the brain. And so that leads to vasogenic edema. In that instance, you get a total increase in the overall volume inside the cranial compartment. That increase in volume is going to lead to an increase in ICP just inherently based on the Monroe Kelly doctrine. So the most common things that I would say lead to vasogenic edema are brain tumors, infections, um, hemorrhagic stroke, press, um, late stage ischemic stroke, hypertensive emergency, some forms of TBI. Um, and the easiest thing for me to remember is if I think of blood being a colloid and I have a hemorrhage, if blood leaves the intravascular space and goes out into the tissue, it's going to have fluid travel with it. So classic example of vasogenic edema. The problem is that hopefully someone listened to the long explanation I just gave and says to themselves, okay, he mentioned things that also could lead to the cells in the brain themselves being ischemic or damaged. And that's what I like to call cellular edema. I don't like the word cytotoxic edema for this as a whole, even though that's what it's called in the textbooks, because cytotoxic implies there's some sort of toxic um, substance there leading to the cell itself not working. So a great example of cytotoxic edema would be, you know, you guys in the ED, your bread and butter, Tylenol overdoses, you know that excessive ingestion of Tylenol and acute liver failure can lead to cerebral edema. That is an actual cytotoxic edema because you have uh, elevated ammonia that develops that travels to inside um, the brain, because the blood-brain barrier becomes ha having increased permeability, it's uptaken by the brain cells themselves. We know at that point that um, ammonia is converted into glutamine, which is an osmotic diuretic, and the brain cell itself swells. To me, that is the best way to understand what a cytotoxic edema is. How is that different than cellular edema? It's not really different. There's just no toxic substance leading to that. So cellular edema is when the brain cells become ischemic um, from uh, TBI, where there's excessive inflammation, putting pressure from an ischemic stroke, 
from a large intracranial hemorrhage where the blood is pressing down on the tissue and adequate oxygen and glucose can't get into the brain cell itself. So when the cell becomes dysfunctional, the sodium potassium ATPase pumps don't work appropriately. They don't pump sodium outside of the cell. That leads to water being uptaken into the cell itself and the cell swelling. I would say, if you think about my example earlier of the ball floating on the water, it's basically just a much bigger ball that pulls in the water um, from its surroundings. Um, the blood-brain barrier does typically um, remain intact if you have isolated cellular edema. However, based on everything I've just said, if you think about it, if the brain cell itself swells, it's likely going to increase volume inside the cranial compartment. That's going to lead to increased intracranial pressure. High ICP increases the permeability of the blood-brain barrier itself, meaning almost everything I talked about, if it has elevated um, ICP associated with it, can then subsequently lead to vasogenic edema. So from a pathophysiologic standpoint, that's the two biggest mechanisms that lead to elevated ICP or edema. And the problem and the reason neurologic injured patients are so complex to treat is actually that most edema is not isolated to one type. Patients have multiple types of edema and can actually develop multiple types of edema based upon what phase of their injury they're in. Awesome description there, Morgan. I really like your point about how all edema isn't equal. I think that's a great point um, that I can take forward into my practice and kind of consider which part of edema does this patient have in front of me. Yes, I would definitely say when you start thinking about edema, when a patient rolls in, if you can think about the physiology I just mentioned, if you go, I've got a TBI coming, it's most likely going to be primarily cytotoxic edema or cellular edema. But depending on the degree of inflammation, there could be a vasogenic component. If there's a tumor, I should start thinking vasogenic, et cetera. That's great. Exactly. So, so we have this, we, we know a little bit about what's going on and we know the path though. The thing that most of us want to know and our providers rely heavily on for us is talk about the pharmacologic interventions that we can use. So can you tell me about the pharmacologic options that we have for treating uh, elevated ICP and cerebral edema? Yeah, so that's a, a broad, far-reaching question, right? And so um, one of the things that I really liked that we tried to do with the cerebral edema guidelines was focus on the most common therapies, which is uh, osmotic therapy. So initially, the guideline when we started was supposed to be just about osmotic therapy. And then when we started honing it down, things broadened a little bit because you can't just talk about osmotic therapy in a vacuum. Um, when I think about main therapies, especially in the ED, the first thing I think about is sedating the patient, slowing down their overall metabolic processes. From an ICP reduction standpoint, you know, your go-to agent there is definitely going to be propofol. Other sedatives like dexmedetomidine or remifentanil or even fentanyl or midazolam infusions, they can reduce ICP, but not through a direct mechanism like propofol does, even though we don't fully understand what that direct mechanism is. Um, if they've got a fever, of course, controlling their fever will help reduce ICP. If they've got a tumor, there's potentially a role for dexamethasone. Um, we know dexamethasone doesn't really work for any sort of edema outside of tumors and could be associated with harm in other disease states. Um, and then when we get into osmotherapy, we talk about osmotic diuretics, primarily mannitol in the United States. Um, in Europe, there are other osmotics available um, uh, that we don't have here. So you may see some other drugs pop up in some guidelines or studies. And then hypertonic sodium. 
Um, I hesitate to say hypertonic saline, even though you're probably going to hear me say that because that's what we use the majority of here in the United States, but it's not just hypertonic saline. I'll go ahead and throw out uh, one I know Jimmy will have beef with, but sodium bicarbonate is actually a hypertonic sodium product. There are products with head of starch and dextran combined in Europe. Um, you can use various formulations of 3% sodium chloride, ranging to 75 23.4, 14.6, 5%. If you want to make this complicated, you can basically do anything and everything you want with a hypertonic sodium product. But if I'm just putting them all into basic buckets, that's really where I would start. Absolutely. And it I think sometimes we we forget all the other things that we could do. So I'm happy that you you broke it down to very basic components with the sedation, with fever control, uh, knowing that you know dexamethasone may be useful for some and not for others, and then our primary agents that we have. And I I love to tell people now that it's more complicated. And it, when they hear me say it, it's one thing, and I say. I'm not the smart one. Which you hear to the people who actually know more about this stuff is even more complicated once you get mm-hmm. further into there. But I, I get we have that. Kristen, do you have any additional questions about the, the role of some of these things or anything else before before we get into um, some other activity? I guess uh, just kind of echoing off you, Jimmy, that these are difficult agents to kind of pick between and that uh, one agent doesn't necessarily fit all pictures. I know that um, at the, the shop I came from, they'll always ask, just get a hypertonic started. Well, what does that mean? Which one do you want? How do you want to give it? Those kind of things. Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, as we keep talking through this, I'll give you what I would consider some of my standard clinical pearl things. But the drug you want to give, in full honesty, is the one you have the most rapid access to depending on the patient's symptoms. You know, um, mentioned earlier that in the ED, you may not have a patient who's got a monitor in place, but for example, if if a trauma rolls into the trauma bay and you immediately see that their systolic is, you know, 90, uh, is 90 millimeters of mercury, their heart rate's in the 20s, they got intermittent apneic episodes, you can immediately in your mind go, this patient's having a Cushing's response. They've got edema or elevated ICP. I need to be going to the Omnicell or Pixis or whatever I have and figuring out what options I have available for me. We're talking about drugs and disease states that, to be honest, a lot of people have a fear of because they don't understand these drugs. Um, Anybody who works at an institution that sees a lot of these patients knows that you can't be successful unless you make friends with your med safety officer, because these drugs have a lot of med safety implications associated with them. Even if my own personal opinion is they're not fully um, as dangerous as we think, there's the perception of danger. And we know that perception is the single most important thing that can take down any intervention or any person. Definitely. appreciate those descriptions. Uh, jumping into our next piece, since now we are talking more about that hypertonic saline and mantle, would you be able to run through the mechanisms of how these agents work on the body in our patients? Yeah, absolutely. I'll uh, I'll start with mannitol because to me it's the easiest to understand. It's an osmotic diuretic. It's a you know most CEs you're going to see about this subject will give you some cheesy title about sugar versus salt and stuff like that. You know, so we're talking. Uh, you know, do you want a cookie or do you want a bag of potato chips, basically? So. Um, if we're talking about mannitol, we're talking about an osmotic diuretic, a big sugar molecule that as it travels through the compartments of the body, 
it's going to pull fluid with it, right? So the first thing you have to establish is that if we start thinking about that physiology I mentioned earlier, in order for mannitol to be the most effective it can be, you'd likely need some sort of non-intact blood-brain barrier. Mannitol can get you some uh, fluid shifting through an intact blood-brain barrier, but it's going to be a much more effective drug if it, um, uh, you have elevated ICP. So what does that mean? If I'm in the field and I don't have an ICP monitor in place and mannitol is all I have, and the patient isn't, isn't exhibiting symptoms of elevated ICP, I shouldn't be giving the drug empirically. I should only be giving mannitol to a patient who has a dedicated elevated ICP, whether I'm seeing that through vital signs or I'm seeing that through an actual ICP monitor. Um, this is a hill that I will die on if you ask all of my attendings about. I'm not a fan of the, the scheduled low-dose mannitol for edema. Um, just mechanistically, it doesn't necessarily make sense why the product would work that way. Um, from a hypertonic sodium standpoint, it's also a lot more loaded question, right? I will, I will be honest. I am more on team uh, hypertonic saline than I am mannitol. I think mannitol has some dangers associated with it we don't quite understand that we'll probably talk about, I would think. But hypertonic saline, we think, is as simple as, oh, it creates a hypertonic environment in the vasculature, so it's going to pull fluid with it, right? Well, that actually isn't fully probably how the product works. We don't actually fully know why it does what it does in some instances. Maybe that high salt load is really irritating to the vessels as they travel through the brain and they constrict and that elevate or that lowers ICP. Um, the best evidence that I have that backs this up is there was actually a study, I believe it was 14 neuro-ICU patients where they tested the CSF sodium concentrations on the patients and found that even if people already had high amounts of sodium in their CSF, they responded to hypertonic saline bullets, so 23.4%, in the same exact way that a person with low sodium did. So that tells me the benefits of the product are actually probably somewhat independent of what the patient's serum sodium levels are, and we don't fully understand that. But again, most of it is just shifting of fluid from one compartment to another. Like that description of uh, why the scheduled mannitol bolus might not be the best yeah. technique. I've caught that battle many times and having that backing now is uh, really gratifying. So we really talked about sort of the, the basic uh, mechanisms here. And I'm going to be honest, I'm going to caveat this. I'm not a mannitol fan. I, I think that we do it because this evidence called my attending set so, and their attending set so, and their attending set so. And no one actually looks at it and see whether data, mechanism, and all the things that actually should influence patient care <laughs> should be based off of. But I really want to talk about some of the controversies that we talk about when, when it comes to the administration of mannitol. Uh, you went through and talked about some of the, the pre-hospital, but can you give me a little bit more information about these certain caveats to mannitol administration versus when we should or should not potentially administer it for uh, cerebral edema and or elevated ICP? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, one, we just mentioned pre-hospital. A lot of people aren't aware that with both of these products, there's actual data about pre-hospital administration or somewhat empiric administration based upon the patient's impaired level of consciousness. Um, and then with mannitol, 
doing that strategy um, has no benefit and can potentially lead to increased and worsened outcomes. Small observational data, but it's enough to make me go, I probably shouldn't be giving these products unless the patient is exhibiting symptoms of elevated ICP or edema. Um, the first controversy I would say exists with mannitol that most people don't know exists um, is the dosing of mannitol. So mannitol was originally studied, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. One is a continuous infusion. So the myth that we're all told that we should monitor serum osmoles and that we should hold for osmoles above 320, all of that comes from continuous infusion mannitol data, which we don't use mannitol um, is a continuous infusion, I would say, in today's practice. The other controversy related to dosing is the fact that most of us base our dosing strategies of mannitol off a series of papers um, that should have been retracted and were actually not retracted. Um, so I didn't learn this myself until I um, was on the guidelines committee. Um, but if you notice, um, the old TBI guidelines used to favor mannitol over hypertonic saline. And then in the 2016 update, that suddenly vanished. That vanished because the Brain Trauma Foundation made the decision to exclude a series of papers by an author last name Cruz um, from future guidelines. And so at the very beginning of our guideline, we were tasked with deciding whether or not we would exclude these papers. And to make a very long, complicated story short, um, this author published these papers that found that high-dose mannitol was an effective treatment for cerebral edema. The higher the dose, the better the patient did. Um, those studies were presented as multi-center studies. Someone basically questioned the validity of those studies by writing an editorial, and they reached out to the authors at the other centers, and those other centers actually said, we never contributed patients to the study. We just consulted on methodologic design. At that point, an editorial was published questioning the validity of the results. And unfortunately, the primary author um, took his own life and never asked to retract the studies. So many of these studies still remain in print. I read them as a resident. I'm sure many people listening had. Um, but we made the decision those would not be applied to the cerebral edema guidelines either. And if you take those out, the evidence with mannitol basically in any disease state uh, is much weaker. Now, here's the caveat. I know from my practice that if I use mannitol and I give you a bigger dose of mannitol, you tend to have a much more profound response, right? Because the higher your ICP is, we also know old data tells us mannitol works much, much better the higher your ICP is. And again, go back to that physiology I gave you earlier. The higher the ICP, the more disturbed the blood-brain barrier is. And mechanistically, the way that mannitol works, it may actually be effective. So I'm going to use mannitol if I've got a person with severely elevated ICP and I need to be able to give them something I can give through a peripheral line. So that would be the next, you know, what I would say controversy with mannitol is, is you can give mannitol through a peripheral line. Um, the problem is if any of you, or I know everybody listening is probably drawn up a mannitol vial one. Um, I think I ruined a brand new pair of Kohan loafers one time drawing up mannitol because it just stained everything on it. My wife bought them for me and was not happy. Um, so I do prefer using the bags. But the problem is unless you're pressure bagging the bags in, most veins that are peripheral aren't going to be able to handle, you know, full-blown rapid administration of mannitol.
And so the last controversy I would say when we talk about administration is how fast do I give the mannitol? I had a former resident once who went to another institution who said they only would let them give every dose over 30 minutes. And he was used to us pressure bagging and getting them into patients fast. And so this is a good example of just because LexiComp says this is the administration time of a drug doesn't mean that's actually what you do, right? You have to think the faster I get the drug into the patient, the more effective it's going to be. And if you're faced with a patient who's actively herniating, you got to get the drug into them fast. From a controversy standpoint, I would say the other um, kind of great thing I was glad we cleared up in the cerebral edema guidelines was when to hold mannitol for um, AKI risk. So we all probably learned if their osmolar gap is greater than 20, you should consider holding the therapy. Um, that's not validated anywhere. That is basically my pharmacist told me that 20 years ago and it got passed down generation for generation. There were only four studies that even looked at this, and the one with the best data actually found that um, an osmolar gap greater than 55 best predicted elevated serum mannitol concentrations, and elevated serum mannitol concentrations predicted AKI. So the way that I look at this, if a patient has a reason to need mannitol, they need mannitol, right? If they need it, they need it. It's a life or death style situation. If you go to the available evidence that is there, mannitol rarely ever causes any sort of AKI that's not mild and reversible. None of the data we have showed that it led to dialysis or anything like that. So it's kind of a risk benefit. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I remember being on ID as a resident and being asked by my preceptor, do you want to adjust that amphotericin? And I was like, yeah, their creatinine clearance is low and the PI says this and I got pounced on, you know? So it's like, okay, they can die of their disseminated fungal infection or not, you know? And so basically you just have to remember in certain instances that the benefit of a drug may outweigh the risk. And with mannitol, osmolar gap greater than 55, low risk of, you know, irreversible AKI, you do what you have to do in certain instances. Absolutely. And that takes me on my, my, my tangent when it comes to the LexiComp pharmacist. I, I, I did a whole big post on this and that went a lot bigger than I, I would like for it to go. But it just comes to show that it, we have to start going back and look at this stuff. LexiComp is not, again, LexiComp, don't sue me. Don't shut down the podcast. We just want to provide the best data. And the job that they've done to combine all that stuff is going to be hard. But I think we should know what the evidence actually say and what's the best for our patient at that time. And I, I love calling clinical pharmacists the, the, the medication influencers, because we just influence everything based off knowledge and being able to take it from brain to vein. And in this case, we have to do that very, very quickly. So I appreciate you from talking about that, because when I'm teaching residents, when I'm at the bedside, the nurse is like, oh, we can't give it that fast. I'm like, why? But, um, because this said so. And I was like, well, I can actually show you the studies that say that we can, or that the benefit's going to be so much more than what we learned in pharmacy, medical, and nursing school. So I, I appreciate you for, for, for clearing that out. Kristen, do you have any questions about um, hypertonic? Definitely. I mean, since we've worked on mannitol, I think it's only fair that we kind of bounce the same question back and say, has there been any controversies with hypertonic failing that uh, is worth noting? Well, I don't know if we physically have enough time to go into all of those. I've known to be long-winded, so I will try to spare the listeners of the pain it would take me to go through them all. But I would try to hit what I would call the, the few same, same kind of thought process as mannitol, right? 
Um, the first is dosing. So it depends on the product that you're using, right? And the indication that you're using it for. The second thing is going to be, am I targeting a sodium goal or am I just trying to treat an elevated ICP? So I think that's where you have to stop and look at the first big controversy is, what's the role of sodium goals in the first place? Where did this come from? Are they beneficial to the patient? etc. So we actually just got the first real randomized trial on this subject in JAMA about two months ago called the COBE trial. Um, and this looked at an infusion of 20% sodium chloride in patients to induce a sodium goal of 145 to 155. And basically what this study found is what I always assumed in theory would happen, but I never had evidence to back me up. Um, which is that early on, this is helpful. Is it helpful because you're inducing a sodium goal or is it helpful because you're infusing 20% sodium chloride, right? So in the first two days of TBI, this was helpful. But after that, the body normalized. So the concept of sodium goals have never, they've never fully made sense to me because our body has compensation mechanisms to adjust brain volume around a sodium goal. So if my sodium is 150 and it's that way for two days, my brain is smart enough to go, okay, I'm just going to adjust potassium channels or chloride channels or other anion channels to balance out the amount of water in and outside the cell. So what they found in the COBE trial was days five to seven, when they started taking the therapy away, everybody's ICP went back up because they had basically been compensating in their own normal way. So one of my attendings likes to argue with me and say, oh, that trial doesn't matter because it was with 20%. We don't use that here. And I'm like, but the concepts are still there. Sodium goals are a concept that we've passed down for 50 years that could potentially be harmful. You know, I didn't mention earlier mannitol, right? Mannitol actually has data out of China, more than 50 studies showing if you give it early in intracerebral hemorrhage, when the brain, blood brain barrier is most permeable, you can actually worsen hematoma expansion because mannitol goes into the parenchyma, right? So the same concepts could apply here when we talk about putting someone on a continuous, you know, infusion of even 3%. If you establish this elevated sodium, the body can level out and it could lead to rebound edema. Um, when you start thinking about hypertonic sodium products in that way, again, I just want to go back to the basic physiology and go, does it even make sense that a sodium goal would help people? And to me, I just can't justify it. Um, especially after I did the guideline, um, we changed our whole dosing strategies here. We used a ton of 3% infusions targeted, and now we do bolus doses if we're going to do a target. And that at least makes me feel like we're being more judicious um, in terms of how we're using the products. Um, I would say the next controversy um, about hypertonic sodium is um, peripheral versus central. Um, I will not be that person who tells you that I'm going to give a 23.4% through a peripheral line on a regular basis. Um, I do think there are risks, and the study that just came out in neurocritical care has a ton of flaws in it and made me a little bit hesitant reading the strong conclusions that it raised. Um, but again, when life or death situations happen, you have to make rapid decisions. So um, central lines for 23.4%, we do give 3% in my institution up to 75 mLs an hour peripherally all the time. We published a multi-center study 
about this. There's been tons of people who've replicated this. If you're giving 3% or if you're requiring a 3% infusion to be given through a central line, I don't believe that you're evaluating the evidence in the correct way and that you're introducing a line into a patient they don't need. Um, other things I would say, just to touch on quick, rate of administration, one of my kind of I wouldn't call it a pet peeve is the literature that shows giving 23.4% too fast can cause hypotension. Um, I want you to think about this. If a patient has an ICP of 50, that means they've likely got a map above 120 trying to maintain perfusion into their brain. So if I slug them with a 30cc bullet and their ICP drops from 50 to 15, I would expect a reflexive drop in blood pressure. So it's not that the product itself causes hypotension, it's that it's effective at doing what it's supposed to, and that lowers blood pressure. This is where it's really important that we encourage people to look at definitions in studies because a 30-point drop in you know, systolic blood pressure, that may not be clinically relevant to the patient. Um, the last thing that I would say is a controversy about hypertonic sodium is that it's safer than mannitol. I don't think we have the right safety evaluations about hypertonic sodium. Do I personally think it's safer? Probably not. I think it's about the same. You know, we published a cohort here that showed 17% of all our patients got some sort of AKI. That's much higher than you saw in previous research. And so I think we just have always assumed because it's not a drug, and, you know, it's a sodium product, it maybe has less toxicities. But I personally believe, believe sodium goals inducing all this hypernatremia definitely has the potential to lead to more adverse effects than we realize. Perfect. Yeah, I think uh, targeting the 150, 155, uh, that's the good, the good point about thinking it's the physiology of that and where that comes from and how that can affect our patients. I appreciate that. But before you go on, Morgan, I want to ask about this because it came up. I helped write the hypodatremia and ICP guidelines at my previous shop in the terminology. And I, I ended up using your study to justify yeah. the peripheral use. But for bolus dosing, like what's the rate of administration? Because this comes up often that a continuous infusion we get to like close to 75 mLs per hour. But for the bolus, how quickly can I give my 3%, you know, 250 mL bolus? You know, I think that's going to vary. Um, we still limit if they're peripheral here, everything has to go in over at, at a max of no more than 75 mLs an hour. Mm -hmm. I think you have to evaluate each patient on an individual level, right? If you have a patient with a small IV and a small vein, I'm probably going to be more hesitant to go faster. But the reality is we do have an exclusion in our med safety guidelines that says, if it's a life or death situation, basically the product may be given faster with closer monitoring. It's okay. not something we want done continually. Um, I think centers across America, I remember I went to a meeting the first year after we published that, and there were four posters on that same subject alone. Um, and so it told me that we struck a, not a nerve, but a, a good spot um, because it was a hole in the data that I think we all just accepted when we were told, oh, you have to give hypertonic sodium through a central line, but central lines are dangerous. So Absolutely. why would I put a line in someone that doesn't have to have? It? Absolutely. So we, we talked about preferring one over the other and, you know, based off some of the studies and again, the guideline recommendations, 
personally, I believe that I will pull out hypertonic saline a little bit more often than the time I use mannitol. But my providers will probably disagree with me depending on how they're trained. So when would you prefer the use of hypertonic sodium chloride compared to mannitol? Um, I think, again, it's hard to give you a specific broad area, but I'll tell you kind of what my normal thought process is in my practice, right? So one, if I've got a patient who's exhibiting signs and symptoms of elevated ICP, my first question is always, do they have a central line or do they not, right? If they don't have a central line, I'm always going to pull mannitol because I don't want to risk giving them a huge volume of 3%. I don't want to risk not being able to get enough 3% into them fast enough. Um, so for me, I'm going to reach for bolus doses of mannitol, one mg per kg in that instance. Um, and we have mannitol bags in our Omni cells and our neuro ICU that allow us to be able to pull those quickly. Okay. If I've got a central line, I'm pretty much, the next question is always going to be, would this patient benefit from diuresis or would they not, right? Because I can get into the nuances all day long of mannitol versus hypertonic saline. But if part of the reason my patient's ICP is elevated is because they're in a CHF exacerbation and they've got backup of venous outflow out of their CNS, then I want to diurese them, right? So if I'm talking about giving him Lasix that day, why not just give him mannitol to try to pull some fluid out and diurese them at the same time? Um, basically those are the two situations where I'm probably going to favor mannitol or I am going to favor mannitol is if I got a peripheral line or if I know the patient benefits from diuresis, right? The challenge is some people may say, oh, if they already have an elevated sodium, I would give them mannitol. That's, that's not what the small amount of evidence we have supports. We know that even with sodiums in the 160s, 23.4% can have the same reduction in ICP, Right. I also say when I look at 23.4%, I'm talking about 30 mLs of something that can give you a concentrated dose and potentially bring ICP down to the same degree as mannitol, but a more durable effect. That's what we say in the guidelines over and over. Giving 23.4% has a longer acting effect. So the reality is the situation that I'm going to choose one or the other is influenced by those two things. The other instances, I'm probably going to reach for 23.4. Now, one of the interesting questions that we take ED residents on neuro ICU every January to June, and they always ask me, if I'm in the ED and I got a herniating patient and I don't have a central line, and like, what do I do? And I say, well, look, one, you could probably throw in a central line in the time it takes for somebody to walk to the Omnicell because you're an ED doctor and you're really good at this. You also got to know IO administration Um, of 23.4%, there is data that supports this. So you really have to look at the patient and go, do I really think hypertonic sodium is a better product for them? If I do, I would rather you throw in an IO or try to get a quick central line in the patient. Otherwise, temporize them with mannitol and then put the lines in and give them the products that you need. Most of the time, you may be giving both. I'll tell you the situations where I avoid mannitol, I avoid recommending mannitol in the first 24 hours of a hemorrhage. And that's based upon that Chinese data that I mentioned. That same data has been replicated um, from an Iranian study. And because these studies were originally published in other languages, we didn't really see them in the United States. To tell you, not a funny story, but an odd one, we actually didn't include any of those studies in the entire cerebral edema guideline 
until I was on my flight home from the in-person meeting where we had written the recommendations and I did an updated PubMed search and someone had translated those 50 Chinese studies into English. And that was the first time I'd ever seen them. And so you'll note in the guideline, we couldn't include them, but we mentioned that they exist and that they should cause people hesitation. There is a thought process that in the early phases of intracerebral hemorrhage or other types of intracranial hemorrhage, that mannitol may travel into the hematoma itself and pull fluid with it. Same thing for ischemic strokes. I don't use scheduled mannitol, and that's a guideline suggestion because they could potentially increase the size of the cellular edema. You just dropped, like, that could be an episode yeah. by itself yeah. right there. I'm, like, sitting here writing everything down, like, wow, yeah. that that's that's amazing. So I think that's really going to help our ED residents, it'll help our ED team and ICU team figure out when it's the best what's the best agent for the, that patient at the time? Because I believe what we traditionally do is get into this competition of cookbook medicine, where if I'm using the ED cookbook or I'm using the neurosurgery's cookbook, and we just base it off of what our attendings have said in the past. So mm-hmm. I'm happy you broke it down based off of what questions do we have about the patient and what information that we can we can provide to our clinicians to make these decisions. So I'm super excited about about that. Um, Kristen, do you have any any other questions about, you know, some of these therapies in the ED? Yeah, I guess uh, with these therapies, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know that we didn't mention before? Uh, as like our kind of close to final thoughts. Yeah, we talked about a lot already. And like I said, we could talk about a whole lot more, but I would really bring this back to something I said earlier, which is that, um, when you work at a busy, you know, comprehensive stroke, level one trauma neurosciences center, you have to make friends with your med safety pharmacist. Um, I've learned this the hard way early on in my career when I've worked with med safety pharmacists who we didn't see the same eye to eye. Um, and then I've learned when you do see eye to eye with them, you can get more things accomplished because Um, You know, one of the things you'll commonly hear people say is, oh, hospital accrediting bodies don't allow me to put 23.4% into an automated dispensing cabinet. And that is not factual. Um, I learned this myself by calling uh, the Joint Commission my first year of practice and learning that. The problem is, is that hospital accrediting bodies discourage it um, unless you have adequate safety parameters. And so I think one of the most beneficial things we did here is we put great safeguards around the product. We keep two vials in each automated dispensing cabinet in our ICUs and the emergency department. Um, It does require verification by a pharmacist, meaning it can't be pulled on override. The reason we did that is because it always means the pharmacist has to be clued into the fact the product is being given. And then it's verified really quickly. We have it in an order set where it's hidden. So just a general provider can't type in 23.4% and find it. You have to know what you're looking for. Um, And then we require the providers to administer it in a more controlled environment. I think when you put safety parameters around the products, because let's be honest, if a patient's herniating, there should be a provider at the bedside. A nurse can push 23.4%, but the simple fact of the reason you're giving it means the provider needs to be there evaluating the patient. And so I think if you can learn about what the safety regulations are and how you can create a safe environment. Um, I recently had the opportunity, our med safety officer put me in touch with ISMP. And so one of the actual reasons many hospitals don't keep the product in an automated dispensing cabinet 
is that ISMP recommends against. And so what we talked with ISMP about was the fact that they call out in their recommendations exceptions for cardiac surgery, but they don't for neuro. Um, and so I got to present at a webinar they do um, that's hundreds of people from across the world that talked about our experiences. And um, at the end of it, ISMP let us know they are exploring updating their recommendations to put a carve out for neuro because they do recognize that the faster patients get these products, the bigger opportunity they are to be saved by them. And so we don't want to limit access because of a recommendation like that. That's great. Definitely. I think the kind of the checklist of items that you work with your med safety on give many of our listeners a great way to kind of talk with those med safety officers, officers and get this product right in the acidosis of the army cells to get to patients as soon as possible. So one of the key things, one of the cool things I should say is that pharmacists have been heavily involved. And I think clinical pharmacy over the last 20 and 30 years has continued to evolve. And one of the parts of the evolution of that in which we talked that SCCM this last year is pharmacist involvement in guideline development. Weird drug experts, there are, it's heavily emphasized in our utilization at the bedside or in rounds, but we didn't necessarily have a huge impact or presence when it came to guideline development. So can you give any remarks about, you know, your experience or just pharmacists in general being involved in guideline development? Yeah, I mean, my experience has been nothing but positive. So, um, Basically, the Neurocritical Care Society uh, started writing guidelines, I think, in 2011 was their first guideline. And if the guideline has had a huge pharmacotherapy focus, it's always had a pharmacist co-chair. Mm-hmm. Um, so for our guideline, Aaron Cook, he's a clinical pharmacy coordinator and neurocritical care pharmacist at the University of Kentucky, um, was the co-chair. And so he, uh, I guess, luckily for me, had seen some papers I published on hypertonic saline and recommended me to be on the guideline. We actually had four pharmacists out of the Mm -hmm. 12 people um, because we had so many drugs to evaluate. Um, And I learned in that process that uh, pharmacists are, we're the workhorses in all things, right? Mm -hmm. We're anal, we're (laughs) detail-oriented. And so it was, uh, the four of us got to have a great uh, involvement in that. Um, I think my experience was a little different because the other co-chair of the guidelines um, was also very, very busy. Um, and I basically asked to have an elevated role. I was willing to take on more responsibilities. And so I was tasked with compiling all the evidentiary tables and then assisting mm-hmm. each of the groups with grading of their papers. And so when I wanted to be more involved, the society let me um, in the end, they recognized my contributions and elevated um, my listing to second author, which was a great, you know, kind of privilege to have the work recognized. But without Aaron seeing my work and giving me a chance, I would have never been given the opportunity. I definitely enjoyed it. I'd love to do it again one day um, and really be able to integrate other pharmacists into the process. So NCS, I think, has a great model where they really want pharmacists involved. Um, and they want to ensure that um, they have the drug experts talking about pharmacotherapy. That's great. I, I, I was just so happy when it came out because I've been having these arguments back and forth with neurosurgery and neurology. And I remember just one day I said, have you read the new guidelines on this? Yeah. It was like, no, I was like, I, I happen to, to, to know the author. Yeah. And just like yeah. just throwing out, throwing out your name for street cred, you know, it, it was just phenomenal and sending that over to them and how well it was designed and so easy to read. Because usually it's like for guidelines, you're like, oh, God, you want to read it, but you don't want to get too in depth. 
Uh, but it was just so well written. And, and now it makes perfect sense that four pharmacists was heavily involved yeah. in that. So uh, that's great. Uh, I don't want to I don't want to prolong this any longer. It's so much for the audience to unpack. You have any final thoughts? No, I would say you summarize it well. You know, the cerebral edema guidelines, they are just that. They're a, they're a guideline. They're not a, a textbook to tell you what to do on every patient. There are not a, a lot of high-level recommendations. Most of them are suggestions. There's very few actual recommendations. Um, but we felt as a committee, the literature pointed us in a certain direction. So the biggest takeaway I hope people have from them is that there's so much more research that's needed, but we need high quality research. So as you're designing projects, please work on giving us things of good quality. We don't need more very low quality evidence studies to cloud the picture. We need things to give us more definitive answers for the future. Absolutely. So I'm going to go ahead and close out, guys. And usually what I like to do is just let everyone give their contact info, if, if possible, where to find you. And lastly, something new I want to add on to the show. If there's any projects, is there any charities, if there's anything that you want the audience to support, this is a great time for that. So, uh, Kristen, I'll start with you. Awesome. You can find me at Twitter at Dr. Kroll, and I'm also on LinkedIn at Christian Kroll. I don't have any charities at this moment. Perfect. Morgan, anything you, you, you want to leave as far as um, contact information and um, any other projects or anything that you're supporting right now? Yeah, you can catch me on Twitter. I'm at gmjones09. Uh, you can contact me via email here at work. It's um, morgan.jones at mlh.org. Um, since we're talking about neuro today, the Neurocritical Care Society just launched what's called the Curing Coma Campaign, which is aimed at getting research dollars towards developing more in-depth neurologic therapies to reduce the amount of neurologic um, morbidity and mortality in the world. So I would definitely encourage everyone to check that out and donate if they have time. Perfect. Well, thank you guys for listening to this episode. This has probably been one of my favorite episodes because I, I filled that seven pages of notes as I was going through. So this has been a phenomenal for us. And I hope it helps you guys with the management of your patients, not only in the ED, but as they transition to the to, into the ICU. Uh, so much more. So I'm going to put all this in the show notes so you guys can check more of this out, particularly with these studies in the guideline. Um, you can guys can, can find me at PharmD underscore in the ED on Twitter. Uh, and you also catch me on LinkedIn at Jimmy Pruitt. Uh, guys, please uh, subscribe to the show. That's going to be like our, our lifeline here. Subscribe, uh, comment, and let us know what you like so we can modify the show to best fit you guys. So I thank you guys again for listening. And I close it out the same way every time. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in an ED, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Thank you. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. Perfect, perfect, perfect.